we have finished the 13 grievous failures and just to entice you for the future I will move to the chapter 16 the next of my selection just to show you another chapter just another angle to the problem of the spiritual development unfortunately we don't have much time and I don't want to keep you late because some of you will join a retreat tomorrow and so thus We'll, we'll stop here in good time. The 16th chapter is very beautiful and it is called the 10 signs of a superior man. We could say of a superior woman as well. There is no sex, it is just simplification of language. And the 10 signs of a superior man is first of all very interesting because it's about evolution. Like how did the Tibetan yogis see when somebody was a superior man or a superior woman. When would they say Dalai Lama is a superior man? Or when would they say this yogini is a superior woman? What did they understand through that? And it of course they cannot refrain from their little irony from the acid spirit which they always have because this chapter ends by saying these are the ten signs of a superior man, their opposites are the ten signs of an inferior man. Like they are not politically correct. Yes, there are superior men and inferior men. Today you are not allowed to say that because people think that you are going to draw it socially, like you are going to transform it in social inequity. If you are going to say that the whites are superior and the blacks are inferior, then you are going to get everybody on your neck because it means that you want to perform apartheid and you want to create racism and dissolution in the society. So nobody even bothers to say maybe the Danes are superior to the Italians or maybe this person is superior to that person. However, in a spiritual environment, the peasants of India, after a few years of observation, they said very clearly, Gandhiji, you are a Mahatma sent to bless our nation. Like they simply said, we are not as good as Gandhiji. Gandhi is a man in a million. He is a man in a billion. He is a man who is born seldom in the history of a nation. Therefore, they realized every Indian peasant 100 years ago or 50, 80 years ago, would have told you Mahatma Gandhi is superior to me. Not because he should have superior social rights, not because of social unequities, but simply they simply said, this man has more grace than me from God. This man has more wisdom. This man is more blessed. This man knows what to do. Let's go and ask Gandhiji what to do now, Gandhiji. What do you advise? In the traditional societies, there has always existed a healthy respect towards the fact that some men and some women are superior. And that superiority is not social. Of course, that if the Tibetans believe that the Dalai Lama is a reincarnated Tulku Lama and he has come to earth 14 times already out of compassion and therefore the Dalai Lama is a superior man, 
then they want that superior man to be put in a privileged condition, which is again politically incorrect in the West, where you don't mix religious feelings with government and administration. And the Tibetans being a spiritual culture, they said, may you, whose name is Ocean of Wisdom, Dalai Lama, who are, as we believe, the 14th incarnation of a great spirit that came for the last five, six hundred years to us, to guide us and to help us, may you be the king. Like, who deserves to live in the best room in the Potala palace? Not the janitor. The Dalai Lama, of course, is just a normal thing for a nation to say, since you are one of the most enlightened people and you have the compassion of a bodhisattva and you want to give your life to the help of us, then, of course, if there is somebody that has a car, you should be the one that should have the car. If there is somebody in Tibet that will have the first computer, then you should have the first computer. Why? Not because we are kissing your ass or because it's social inequality and you are like a tyrant and a domineering king or something and you are just uh, arrogant and you are pulling everything to you. It's a normal thing. Who should be dressed in the most beautiful clothes in a kingdom if not the king? It's a completely impolite and politically incorrect thing to try to outshine the king in a gathering. It's the normal, humble thing is to keep yourself half of a centimeter lower than the king. Because you don't demo... Let's say that you have enough money and you can hire the most stunning tailor in the world and come to a gathering, to a throne room gathering, dressed in a more shining way than the king himself. It's a stupid thing to do. Not to mention that if the king is an arrogant jerk, you'll lose your head in the process. But it's a stupid thing to do philosophically. Because why would you try to outshine the king? Everybody seems to believe that the king is the helmsman of the boat. Then why are you trying to outsmart the helmsman of the boat? Some people would say, yeah, but I don't think that the king is the smartest or that the Dalai Lama is the best. Don't think that in Tibet everybody does. There are many, many people among the Tibetans who criticize Dalai Lama for a variety of reasons. Some, the Kargyutpa people, criticize him because of some things from between the Gelukpa school and the Kargyutpa school. There is some sectarian inter-school strife. Some people think that Tibetans should have gone on armed rebellion against the Chinese and this compassionate, peaceful stance of Dalai Lama shows no balls and he's a very weak leader. There are many factions in Tibet. Don't think Dalai Lama has 100% approval in Tibet. Maybe his approval is 70 or 80%, which makes it big enough. There will always be 20%. And Dalai Lama goes with bodyguards because there are people among the Tibetans who try to kill him. Now, I'm not talking about the Chinese. That's on top of it. But even among the Tibetans, there are people who, if they could, they would assassinate the Dalai Lama. Therefore, don't think that this view is universal. Especially in modern times, we have this iconoclastic attitude where we try to tumble the gods of their pedestals and let nobody be better than anybody. This being an attitude on Svadhisthana. Svadhisthana, people don't feel good until they don't drag through the mud everybody. 
There should be nothing sacred, nobody higher than anybody. Everybody is a jerk, everybody is equal socially and this and that. Really, when you think about a Dalai Lama, when you think about a Buddha, when you think about people like this, you can see that there are people who are superior. And of course, what do we do with superior people? That's a different story. For example, there are societies in which the superior people are killed. Like Socrates was obviously morally superior to the Athenians. And the Athenians didn't put him president. They didn't put him king of Athens. They poisoned him. They simply said, you are uncomfortable, drink poison, and that's it. This is why, don't think that the superiority is always accepted as such. In communist, though most of you never lived under communist, but I can tell you in the communist ideology, the best position for a person to become a leader and to be accepted was to be the son of a farmer or of a blue-collar worker. If you were coming from an intellectual family and you yourself were an intellectual, you had a mark on you already, like you will never get to the top. Because you are coming from a little bit of bourgeois aristocracy, you, you are not coming from down, from the bottom. Like, it was exactly the other way around. Those people that were superior through their education, through their morality, through their intelligence, they were subordinated to the stupids. It was a title of glory of the communism that the intellectuals should serve the working class. If you are a writer, you had to write literature in which you kiss the ass of the working class. The working class was the most important thing. This is completely upside down. Not only that you don't put superior people on top and tell them, guide us. You have bigger intelligence, bigger knowledge. Steer the boat. If you know how to navigate, then you deserve to be the navigator of the ship. You deserve to be the helmsman. Because, no. So don't think it's always like this. And that's why this concept with the superior man and inferior man are very politically incorrect and controversial because in many societies you don't even accept it. The Tibetans accepted it. There are Karmapas and Dalai Lamas and Tulkulamas who are superior men. And the Tibetans, because they were a spiritual society, they chose to respect them. It's not always the same. There are societies in which superior people were identified and killed. Even killed, assassinated. For perhaps the arch example is Jesus. There came a rumor that a baby was born that was very superior, that was going to save Israel and be a guiding light in the dark. And the local king, did he say, where is that child so I can give him a splendid education and help him from the beginning? I will adopt that child and make him my spiritual son. I will give him my name because since when are we waiting for a valuable person to be? No, the local king was so selfish that he tried to murder baby Jesus and through divine providence Jesus escaped that criminal murderous action and that is why the superior man especially in a non-spiritual society is not always appreciated or given a 
place which in an insane society it would deserve. On the contrary, in the Christian society very, very often saints were persecuted, murdered, tortured. Don't think that only Jesus had to undergo that. Even Francis of Assisi was tortured and threatened with death. In the 12th century Italy, which was a super Catholic country, 100% Christian, and the man who was more Christian than the Christians, who was ultra-Christian, a saint, as he was later proclaimed, was actually persecuted. So people have this iconoclastic thing because anything superior irritates them. It's like a thorn in the eye. It all the time reminds you of your imperfection. And instead of you humbling yourself and working to improve yourself, if you prefer to just stay inert and do nothing and kill the bastard that is rubbing in your face the fact that you are not that superior. That's the lazy, entropic, demonic, dark, tamasic solution. And here is one of them, just to give you a taste of that, after which we'll conclude most uh, more of this on the next satsang, which, uh, as far as I'm aware at this time, is probably the first satsang of next season in January, in 2013. One sign of a superior man. One, to have but little pride and no envy is the sign of a superior man. Little pride, it doesn't say no pride. It says little pride, like a pride which will not make you take wrong decisions. A pride which is not governing and ruling over your things. You can be proud that you have had a beautiful initiation and I am proud that I got to know Laya Yoga or I am proud that I know the Kriya Yoga technology or I am proud that I have managed to learn Kashmiri Shaivism in this lifetime or things like this. There is some pride which is applied here and there which is not a selfish pride and definitely it's not a destructive pride. So they don't require, but he says to have but little pride and no envy is the sign of a superior man. On the contrary, the opposites, to have big pride and envy, that's the sign of an inferior man. That is why in spirituality, pride and envy are considered great poisons. It is funny that in the society, somebody stays and takes some shit, and the family, their mother, their brother, somebody says, do you stay like this and take it? You have no pride? This is how I raised you. Like they want you to have pride. But pride is a demonic thing. Pride is the fall of Satan in the Bible, both for the Jews and for the Christians and for the Muslims. That's why Satan fell, because of becoming proud. And everybody, your family, says you have no pride and you have to defend the pride of this and the pride of that. Why pride? Why always preach pride? Why, why doesn't everybody preach humbleness? Actually, everybody thinks that they are uh, faithful Jews, faithful Christians, faithful Muslims, but they preach pride. When all the spiritual authorities, they preach humbleness. Be humble. Nobody listens to that because it's very difficult. The natural thing is to be proud because that's where the ego goes. 
does the religious teaching say be humble? Like somebody came and offended you or your religion or something. And you can be humble. You can take it with humbleness. Sure, maybe you are smarter. Maybe you know more. Show me if you've got something to show. I can always, you know, say be humble. In the school here we've got some murderous dude. Later he became a murderer who a few years ago came and pretended he was coming from Shambhala and he was belonging to some secret Swami organization from Rishikesh. And I didn't put him down. I said, say what you have to say. He came in a public meeting in front of everybody of Agama and he started telling such ridiculous rubbish that a 70-year-old man with gray hair, you know, an old senior pupil of Agama, a man of great social respectability, he came to me in the middle of lecture and he said, please stop him because he makes a fool of himself and of the whole thing. You know, it's like everybody already can see that he is not what he pretends to be. You know, like give him rope and he will hang himself with it. That's why I say, what, what does it cost that for the right period of time, be humble, say, anybody has to show, any one of you thinks you can levitate or you can enlighten us all or something, you know. Why don't you show us if there is something of it? And if it's not there, then of course it will blow itself off. It will simply, the demonstration will be through the very incapacity of those statements. That is why this statement is very beautiful. To have little pride and no envy. Very much in spirituality, people have fallen into pride. Tibet was typical because the Tibetans are very Manipuristic. And those people, they went into the monastery. But even in the monastery, they wanted respect, position, power. Very Manipuristic. Like there were many high lamas and others who were behaving like feudal warlords. They were requiring unconditional obedience, all the money, all the gold, all the respect, all this to the point where many Tibetans actually joined communism at the time of Mao Zedong and this because they were simply fed up because the Tibetan lamas were behaving like a religious aristocracy. They were behaving like some spoiled religious people, exactly as in Europe, people raised against the priests and the church and others at many times, simply because there was too much, too many privileges, too much exploitation, too much shamelessness, too much lie, too much deceit, and people couldn't take it. This happened in Tibet as well. Don't think Tibet was exempt of it. Even more so, because Tibetans are a breed of people with a strong Manipura, and Manipuristic values were and are still very strong in their culture. And thus, in India as well, you can see it so very often that you know the biggest guru has to have the biggest horse. If one guru has one horse at the Kumbha Mela, then the other guru has to have two horses or four horses or six horses. It's all about status, showing off, pol polished gold and all sorts of things. Pride and envy. First characteristic, Tibetans say a man who is superior has very little pride and that pride is used in non-selfish ways such as I'm proud that I could learn the message of the Buddha. I'm very proud that in this life I have been given the privilege 
to listen to the teachings of the Buddha. Because if I wouldn't be proud, I wouldn't hold that in high esteem. The pride is not about me. The pride is about Buddha. It's a way of worshipping, a way of venerating the value of the message of Buddha. So that pride is okay. That's why they don't say no pride. They say very little pride. The pride which is not egocentric and selfish. And no envy. Have what you have. Like in Agama, for example, you have more than enough. Yoga techniques, technology, practice, everything which you need. Nobody, none of you who stays in Agama for a month or for ten years will not be able to go at your judgment day and complain to your guardian angel or to God that I did not receive spiritual guidance and methods. That is not possible because you did. Therefore, there is nothing to be envious on. And actually, that is the point where you can put your pride. I am proud that in Kali Yuga, there are few people who can say that they know the tantric yogic tradition. And I am one of the few privileged people who has had such a good karma. That's a good pride because it makes you feel the worth of what you know and what you do. It's making you sit up or stand up vertically and simply say, no, it's not without value what I have. I have received something of value and I honor it by honoring myself. You know, it's like the fact that I have been given this teaching puts a certain responsibility. It means I have been considered worthy of it and therefore I'm proud that I managed to have this in this life. Not in every life. On the contrary, look at the percentage in the world. The Tibetans say that maybe for the ignorant person, it maybe takes a thousand lifetimes. A thousand lifetimes means a huge, a humongously huge amount of time that you will reach a lifetime where you get spiritual initiations of the highest kind. Here in the school, we give like popcorn teachings from Kashmiri Shaivism, you know. But people could not learn Kashmiri Shaivism absolutely at all. First of all, outside Kashmir, people didn't have a clue of what Kashmiri Shaivism is. In Kashmir, when the first scholars went to Kashmir to borrow the books, the librarians of the state library of Kashmir, who are Muslim and they couldn't care about some shitty Hindu tradition from the 10th century, they refused to lend them the books. They simply said, this is esoteric stuff from the old days. Somebody initiated you. Are you the disciple of some guru? Does somebody vouch for you? Those people said, are you crazy? You're not supposed to judge me. I'm a scholar. Those people said, maybe in your country and in your, here in Kashmir, we haven't heard about this scholar thing which you say. Here in Kashmir, people get teachings if they deserve them. And you guys are just some farangs who came shamelessly to the library and asked for some sacred texts. We did not give them. There was necessary political intervention through the Indian universities and through the government and so on to give them access to that literature. This was so, so strong, the spirit was. And today people come to a workshop of Kashmiri Shaivis and they imagine absurdly that if you don't make major efforts, 
in the next life you are going to be given again the Kashmiri Shaivism, like it's Shiva's duty to feed you with Kashmiri Shaivism, like it's Shambhala's obligation to provide you with the creme, creme de la creme, with the cream of the cream, with the best. It's completely preposterous. When you read traditional literature, you see that you should, every time you see a Shiva statue, you should throw yourself on the belly in front of it with gratitude because you've been allowed to see texts of Kashmiri Shaivism in this life which make possible for you to attain the highest levels of spiritual emancipation and realization. It's a grace. That is why, of course, you can have a pride for because the pride is not about you. It's the pride of God. It's the honor of God that you sustain by giving value to the spiritual teachings. The Christians have conquered most of the civilized world of today with this feeling. We are Christian, therefore we are chosen by God. They took over the chosen mentality of the Jews and then they thought that we are the next chosen ones. So when we go to the, to the South America, those people are garbage. We are the chosen ones of Jesus. And these people, if they are lucky, they will get baptized and they will also become Christians. Like being Christian meant to be one head about, above everyone else. The legend of Pocahontas, which you see in there's even this movie, The New World, and of course the cartoon and so on. The legend of Pocahontas is that Pocahontas, some Indian girl, some red-skinned Indian-American native girl from America, she was brought like a, an exhibit, like an exhibit to London, and she baptized herself, and she started wearing gloves and behaving like a British lady. And although she was not white and with blue eyes, which also mattered, the fact that Pocahontas turned Christian was like, well, see, there is hope for those barbarians from North America because they can become Christianized, you know. They can become real human beings like they weren't before. Neither were the Japanese, nor the Indians, nor the, they were all heathens, pagans. They were lost. They were people that were lower than the very privileged Christians. This is arrogance. This is pride in the demonic way. But it comes from the fact that Jesus himself told to the apostles, you twelve, you are more valuable than anybody on the face of this earth. He told them, not even a hair on your head shall be touched without my Father in heaven knowing about it. You are the salt of the earth. And he was right, textually speaking, because the twelve apostles did a huge work and whatever Christianity is today is due to the work continued by the twelve apostles and then by the saints that followed after them. So they were important and there was this pride. Like I was chosen by Jesus to spread his message. That gives a pride. But it's a pride which should not become the demonic arrogant pride which becomes a justification for the ego. Because I'm British and because I'm Christian, I can traffic opium to China and the hell with those yellow bastards. They deserve to be addicted to opium. We are making money and I'm going to be praised by Queen Elizabeth or somebody 
because I'm a rich British gentleman and do I have any sin that I'm just drugging a whole nation and ripping them off financially and this? No, no, because those are not even Christians, you know. They are not like, it, it is a very narrow margin where a pride which is spiritual and which is put outside of you, like I venerate the spiritual thing, becomes a strengthening of your own ego. And that's why spiritual people sometimes have little pride and sometimes they can become very arrogant and that is the downfall of it. So to have very little pride and to have no envy, these are ultimately things from yama and niyama. No, the envy is the root of asteya, theft. People commit theft or misappropriation because they envy each other. I want to have what you have and I'm going to kill somebody for it or I'm going to do something immoral, unethical because I want it, I'm envious. Envy and pride are two of the capital offenses to spirituality and that's why the Tibetans start with it. The first sign of a superior man is to be with not big pride and that pride to be a veneration type of pride, not about you, how big and smart you are, but to be grateful. It's more like a pride due to gratefulness and no envy because indeed every person that is on a spiritual path receives whatever grace they need. There is no need for envy of any kind. It is a childish thing to think that you can solve your problems externally, quantitatively, materialistically through envy <coughs> and not to solve it internally, not to solve it through the quality of one's spiritual life. Enough of this, it is late enough. Let us remain for a couple of minutes in interiorization, absorbing the beautiful, uncompromising message of the Tibetan yogis, and then we stop for tonight and part. And that will do. With this we have finished. Namaste to all of you and thank you for joining. This was apparently the last of the satsangs for this season. They will start again in January 2013. With this we have stopped for tonight. <laughs>